0: And so it's really his last words. And he said, well, what, what would your last words be? What would, what would be the last thing you would say if you knew this was it? And here's God in human flesh. What, what is his last words? And his last teaching publicly to these religious leaders is, I am God in human flesh. What you believe about Jesus matters more than anything else in your life. And he's going to say, make no mistake about it, he is the son of God, he is God in human flesh. Luke chapter 20, verse 39 and following. Some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. And then he said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore David calls him Lord. And how is he his son. And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplace, chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Last week, our focus was on the inherent danger of becoming a leader, especially a religious leader. Here, Jesus says, they will receive a greater condemnation. And to some extent, this applies to all of us. We're all called to teach. We're all called to fulfill the Great Commission, to go and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that we have commanded. And we do this in a variety of ways here at Country Oaks through Sunday School, Adult Sunday School, the small groups. Matt Sheridan talked about from the pulpit, our school, Heritage Oak School, and on and on it goes. But I would hope that there's hundreds, if not thousands, of daily conversations going on in your home and in your workplace where you are teaching That is what we are called to do, to teach the gospel, to share the good news, to make disciples of Christ. And the more we know and the more gifted we are, the more there's a danger of becoming puffed up, to start to feel that you're better than others, you have certain privileges that others don't have. And this should not be the case, and we see that the scribes among the religious leaders were very intelligent men. They were given those gifts by God to know the Scripture and rightly interpret the Scripture and rightly apply the Scripture, especially in a theocratic society where there was no separation of church and state. And because of their important lofty position, there would be temptation to feel you are better than others, different than others more righteous than others. And there would be a temptation to look down on others and to not preach of grace and mercy because you don't need it for yourself. And even worse, to use the entire religious system of tithes and offerings to exploit it for your own financial gain. And this is what was going on with the scribes. But that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is that their job... Their calling was to use the scriptures to point people to God. To point people to God. That is your job. That is my job. To point people to God. And to be careful not to point people to me following God. We don't need disciples of you and me. We need disciples of Christ. Yes, model Christ-like living. But at the end of the day, your job is to point people to God. Whether they accept him, that is between the person and God. You can't change a heart. You can't make your argument so clever and airtight that surely they must believe in God. And by the same token, you can't change what the scriptures say about God to make him more palatable to humanity you must understand that our fallenness the very essence of our fallenness is that we reject God for who he is we don't want him to be who he is because he doesn't make us look very big and so trying to turn God into something less than God is is the worst offense Of all. And here God shows up in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and the religious leaders whose sole purpose were to point people to God were pointing people away from God. Pointing people away from God incarnate. Oh, we know God, though that can't be Him. We're the leaders, the religious leaders. We know God better than anybody else. Oh, that can't be God. Who? Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son? I hear born of illegitimate means, right? All the talk. Has anything good ever come out of Nazareth? This can't be Messiah, and certainly Messiah cannot be God. And yet this is exactly who Jesus claimed to be. Took a course in college as an unbeliever. I just had to find one more humanities course, so I took a course called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. Had no idea it was a liberal attempt to discredit the deity of Christ and say, hey, forget the Bible as a historical document, let's try to figure out who this Jesus really was. And uh, being completely ignorant and blind to everything as an unbeliever, I Paid no attention, I only took the class because it had the title Jesus in it, and I grew up in the church, so I'm like, how hard could it be? And I think I got an A in that class, and I didn't get a lot of A's in college, so I was really good at believing whatever anybody told me about Jesus, and that is the life of the unbeliever, but it shouldn't be Your life as a believer in Jesus Christ. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Your mind illuminated by the Holy Spirit to understand the scriptures. And that you believe by faith that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Even if that doesn't make sense on a human level. This is our God. Country Oaks is all about Jesus. All about Jesus. We always will be all about Jesus. Jesus, even when Jesus becomes unpopular or becomes a curse word or becomes uh, a reason to throw you in prison, we will be all about Jesus. We adore Jesus by learning from Jesus so we can love like Jesus. And all through the ages, man has denied either his divinity, his deity, or his humanity. It can't be both. Can't be both. More often than not, though, it's his divinity, his deity, that is discounted. The great monotheistic religions, Islam and Judaism, can't accept that God would be a man. And then you have all the offshoots of Christianity, uh, uh, the cults that appear Christian, but when you dig into their doctrine, you realize. They do not believe in Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity. You're Unitarians, you're Jehovah Witnesses, and, and on it goes. Everyone attacking the deity of Christ, but this is what Christ says about himself. The great apologist Josh McDowell would say Jesus was either legend, l- lunatic, Liar or Lord. He's either lunatic, legend, liar, or Lord. But you can't just say he was a good teacher. Good teachers don't talk the way Jesus talked. If he's not God, he's a lunatic or he's a liar. And if he was just a legend, then we wouldn't have all this historical evidence telling us he truly existed. So the question this morning is, who do you think Jesus is? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you think, he is who he is. But it does matter in the sense that what you do with Jesus determines your eternal future. So this morning we're going to focus on Jesus' argument for his own divinity. It's not the only argument. The Scriptures replete with arguments for the deity of Christ. But since he's talking to the scribes, he chooses a portion of Scripture they would know really well. Except they've never interpreted it correctly. And so one last time, he will publicly put these people in their place. Publicly put the religious leaders in their place. And for good measure, these self-righteous people, you notice at the end, he says, beware of the scribes. And uh, oh, by the way, they're not good people. They devour widows' houses. They're all about their own self-glory. They always have to have the best seats. They pray long prayers in public to impress people. So not only do they have the wrong doctrine, but... You can't trust their teaching because they're not men of integrity. Look at the way they live their lives. There's no fear of the Lord evident at all in their lives. All heresies that deny the deity of Christ start with either denying the Scripture or misinterpreting the Scripture. Because the Scripture clearly teaches the deity of Christ. Scripture clearly teaches the deity of Christ. So, to deny it, you either have to deny Scripture is authoritative at all, but you're not going to say that. You're going to a Bible-believing, expositional preaching church. You demand that your leaders believe in the inerrancy and authority of Scripture. Amen. Where we're going to be tempted to doubt is when instead of reading the clear message of the Scripture, you begin with human wisdom and then say, well, that can't be what it's saying. This is how all heresies start. Because that doesn't really make sense to me on a human level. Or that's not the God that I would want. And next thing you know, Jesus is no longer Lord in your life. He's your friend. He's your homeboy. You hear some people say, Jesus is my homie. No, he's not. He's your God. He's your Lord and your God. He's not just some great therapist. He's your Savior. And so let's look at Jesus' argument from the Scriptures. Psalm 110 is the psalm he's quoting. It's a psalm of David, definitely messianic, meaning it's a, it's a psalm that is prophesying about Messiah. David is writing about himself, but at the same time, because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's writing things about future events. And so there's things that apply to David now, but then there's things that apply to Messiah. David is not Messiah. We say he's a type of Christ. He prefigured Christ. He gave us a glimpse into what kind of king Jesus would be. And so Jesus says to these very learned men, remember, they're, they're the top dogs in society. These are the Harvard Law graduates of the day. They get paid the big bucks. They're the lawyers. They know the scripture. And Jesus says, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? Everybody agreed from the scripture that Messiah would be in the line of David. Messiah would be in the line of David. And I was kind of blown away as I was studying this week. Just, one commentator pointed out the obvious. You know when you like, think there's probably nothing really new to learn in Christianity. I just need to be reminded of old things. And then you're like, what a fool to think that. They would have birth certificate records in the temple. They know Jesus of Nazareth is in the line of David. So if he wasn't and he was claiming to be Messiah, they would immediately go, You're not in the line of David. Case closed. And Jesus would have to agree with them, said, You're right. They knew he was in the line of David. So now we've got a problem. Okay, well, you know, he technically fits the credentials plus all the miracles and raising people from the, you know. I mean, other people were like, yeah, this is the one. But the scribes said, well, he does his miracles by the power of Satan. Like, Every evidence, they had a counter-argument. Because when you don't want to believe something, then you interpret everything through that lens. Can't he can't be God. He can't be God. Can't be God. He doesn't fit our description of God. Well, who does? Someone more like me. Right? That's not what they're gonna say out loud, but that was the problem. The beautiful one showed up and and parading around in their white robes with their fringe all the way down to their feet just made them look all the more ugly. That's a reference Jesus made to the religious leaders when he said, they're like whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones, and they're white showy gowns that they would wear. The beautiful, pure, righteous one showed up. He said, well, now that's what God would be if he was a man. That's what he would have to be in it didn't fit their description because it didn't match what they thought about themselves. And certainly if God did show it up, the first people he'd come to to shake hands with would be us. You know. And he didn't. He went and he ate with the prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. That, that makes no sense to them. So Jesus is quoting this messianic psalm, Psalm 110, and I love this. you got to pick up on the Subtle jabs. I mean, Jesus is poking at the hornet's nest. He knows they're going to kill him. It's already been ordained. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit put this plan together a long, long time ago. And it's all happening according to their timeline. And so he says, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in, in the book of Psalms. And they're like, like, we know where it is. You don't have to tell us it's in the book of Psalms. Like, why would you even have to put that in there? That, that's, that's like a, a little subtle, jet. just in case you don't know where, where this scripture is. It's in the book of Psalms. That's, that's the, the book with 150 songs of praise to God. You know, it just, he's, he's really getting under their skin in a sanctified, righteous kind of way. You can't get under people's skin unless there's something wrong with them that allows you to get under their skin. It's their own high and mighty view of themselves that made them seethe with anger against Jesus. He really didn't have to say much to get them to... So he's quoting Psalm 110 and he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And they're like, right, we know the psalm. You don't have to point it out to us. Get on with it. What's your point? What's your point? Well, let's look at the rest of Psalm 110, or at least the front half of it. A Psalm of David, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array. From the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has... Sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And you're like, whoa, what is that all about? Lots of imagery there, and who's this Melchizedek? Who's this Melchizedek? We're not going to do an exposition of Psalm 110, but we are going to focus on the Verse 4, and then we'll go back and focus on verse 1. The New Testament writers were so convinced that this was the best argument for the deity of Christ, that they would preach Psalm 110. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Acts 2.34, Peter's first sermon Like when he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's not a coward anymore. And he's preaching with boldness. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's not talking about David. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Lord and Savior. Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. He's not just Messiah. He's Lord and Christ. Lord, the designation for God. He is God and Christ. Lord and Savior. This Jesus whom you crucified. Yes, Messiah came and you didn't recognize him and you killed him. God came in human flesh, you didn't recognize him, you killed him. But because he is God, he couldn't stay dead. You can't kill God. Sorry, Nietzsche. God is not dead. He's very much alive. Hebrews 110 is also uh, quoted extensively in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 113, but to which Of the angels, has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He's not some glorified angel. There were those even in this day that were saying, okay, well, maybe Jesus is an angelic being. Maybe he's an angelic being. That's what the Jehovah Witnesses say about Jesus. That he's an angelic being. He's he's Michael the archangel. but the bible clearly states that i will make your enemies a footstool for your feet this is a designation for god alone that god will be lord over his enemies and his enemies will be a footstool for his feet that's that's not angelic talk the angels don't have that prerogative they don't have that place Hebrews 5.9 And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal, eternal salvation. To all those who obey him, the source of eternal salvation. Here's the gospel. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. What, what is that doing in there? There's that Melchizedek again. Who's this Melchizedek? What's the order of Melchizedek? The whole book of Hebrews is an argument that the New Testament is, supplants the Old. The New Testament is superior to the Old Covenant. The New Covenant, superior to the Old. The Old pointed to the New, but the New is so much better in every way. In the Old Covenant, you had to keep making sacrifices of animals over and over and over and over. In the New Covenant, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who was slain. Once and for all, it is finished. In the Old Covenant, you needed priestly mediators between you and God. Except human priestly mediators, there's a problem there. They're sinful and they die. And so you need new ones. But now we have a perfect mediator A perfect high priest. So he's a better sacrifice. He's a better high priest. He's a better temple. And on it goes. But we get to this high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And you might be asking, who is this Melchizedek? You know, it's like the great Sunday school Bible trivia question. It's like final jeopardy. Melchizedek is mentioned briefly in Genesis chapter 14. He's the king priest of Salem, not where the witch trials were, right? They got the name from the Bible, not the other way around. He's the king priest of Salem, and Abraham enters his territory, uh, fights a battle, and then goes and meets with the king priest of Salem, and he gives the king priest Melchizedek a tithe. So here's Abraham submitting to the authority of this king-priest. Why do you keep saying king-priest? Because that's what he was. And after Melchizedek, the kingly line and the priestly line would always be separate. Always be separate. Because that's a good thing. Think historically what happens when kings try to be priests. Right? And we know that the term separation of church and state gets abused in our country. And that it, nowhere in the Constitution do we find that statement. And we don't want the church eliminated from the state. We don't want religion eliminated from public view. Our faith determines how we live. We can't put it in a box Sunday morning, can we? We can't put it in a box Sunday morning and then leave the church and live a different way. In fact, the Bible commands us not to do that. Yet, at the same time, we don't want the state becoming the church. It never turns out well. Never turns out well. Remember when King Saul tried to play the role of priest. He was rebuked by God for... Making those sacrifices that only Samuel should have been making. Separation of power was God's idea because sinful man can't handle a consolidation of power. But there was once this order, this order of Melchizedek. And an order implies that there was one after another, after another, after another. But we don't see another Melchizedek in the Bible. The priestly line becomes the Levitical line, right? The Levites were the priestly line. And then later in the New Testament, we see that the line of Zadok was the priestly line. The Sadducees were all from the priestly line of Zadok. That's how they monopolized the temple and all the positions of authority in the temple. The kingly line eventually went through David and Jesus, well, God, made a covenant with David that the kingly line would always go through David. So you've got your priestly line and your kingly line, but what the writer of Hebrews is arguing and what Peter's arguing and what Jesus is arguing is those two lines have now come back together in the person of Jesus Christ because only... The God-man, Jesus Christ, can be the perfect king-priest. Amen? We don't need separate offices now. You don't need a whole bunch of priests mediating between you and God. You have the great high priest, Jesus Christ, mediating for you. He mediated for you on the cross and... He sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for the saints as we speak. If you are in Jesus Christ, you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He is praying for you as we speak, He is mediating for you. That makes all the difference. That takes away all fear, all anxiety. On those days where you're like, I don't even know what to pray, He's praying. For you. And as Romans 8 tells us. Sometimes even the Holy Spirit. With groaning t- too deep for words. Takes our prayers. And changes them in the prayers. That we want them to be. And so you never have to feel like. You can't pray. Just start praying. God knows what you need. Even before he asks. But he commands you to ask. The great high. High priest king priest but only god himself could be the perfect king priest and so we start with messiah who is messiah well he's he, we know he's david's son but he needs to be more than messiah he needs to be more than a geopolitical conquering hero we need a mediator we need a priest but we also need a leader we need a king Who is adequate to be all these things? Only God himself. And so we have a divine king, priest, Messiah, Jesus Christ. In Christ, God has brought together the kingly and priestly lines. Look what the writer of Hebrews goes on on to say. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek... And he's saying there hasn't been one. There hasn't been another Melchizedek. But if another came along who was like Melchizedek, a a king priest, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Back to Psalm 110 again. You're like, well, how would we know he's in the order of Melchizedek? Not based on of a law of physical requirement. We're not talking about some kind of genealogical line. If he's going to be the kind of king priest that Psalm 110 predicts, then he has to be God, he has to have the power of an indestructible life. This is how we know Jesus fulfills these credentials. They killed him, and he said, you can't kill me. I'm back. I'm the king, priest, forever. In the order of Melchizedek, there's never been anyone else in the line of Melchizedek, so Melchizedek becomes a figure, a type of the better Melchizedek to come. Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. He's the greater David. He surpasses King David. David was just a type of what was to come. Everything else was shadow. Jesus is substance. All the scribes agreed that Messiah would be David's offspring. No argument there. Isaiah nine, which we normally read at Christmas time, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the time, this time forth and forevermore. Okay, so David can't have a forever kingdom; he's a man; he's he's died. Psalm eighty nine three. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. We get it. Messiah will come in the line of David. He's got to be in the line of David. He's got to be in the line of David. And so Jesus defends his deity from the scriptures. He argues with the people who claim to be The keeper of the scriptures from the scriptures. Remember what he said to the Sadducees. You neither have the scriptures nor the power of God. It's like, well, we know the scriptures. We're the Sadducees. We teach the scriptures. No, no. You you have them, but you don't know them because you have the wrong interpretation. You all have a Bible in your lap, but unless you have the proper interpretation, you don't have the Word of God. You have words on a page. It's not that it becomes the Word of God when you believe the Word of God. That's neo-orthodox Karl Barth. Stay away from him. It's the Word of God before you believed it was the Word of God. But if you have the wrong interpretation, then you understand, in a sense, you don't have the Word of God. So here's Jesus saying, let me give you the proper interpretation because I'm the Word made flesh. I know the proper interpretation. I am the proper interpretation. So how is it that they say the Christ is David's son and no one's stopping them there? Nobody's saying, well, nobody says that. No, that's obvious. Everyone knows the Messiah, the Christ, will be David's son. So he goes back to Psalm 110, perhaps... The, the most foundational of the Messianic Psalms, and says, Then how is it that David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord, all caps, Yahweh, the covenant name for God, says to my Lord, Well, who's David's Lord? He's, he's the king. Who's David calling Lord. Sit at my right hand and I t- until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore David calls him Lord. And then, how is it that he, he is his son? A father wouldn't call his son my Lord. You might call your father my Lord in this culture. A wife might call her husband my Lord, like Sarah called Abraham my Lord. A slave would definitely call the master my Lord, but a slave... A father would never call his son my lord. Got that? Adam and Aaron? All right. <laughs> right, our kids get to an age where they think they should be in charge. No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work. You can have sons of your own someday and you'd be in charge. So, it's a great argument one of those head-scratchers. So much so that I mentioned last week that many that want to deny the deity of Christ in, the, in Judaism reject Psalm 110 now as Messianic. Oh, he was talking about something else. Because it's, it's such an obvious argument that David is talking about Messiah as divine. He's using the name of God, my Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. And here's the brilliance of the whole thing. And normally we up at Christmas, but why wait for Christmas? So it's, Messiah has to be divine, but he has to be in the line of David. Well, how are you going to get divinity from an earthly line? If he's not from the line of David, then he doesn't fulfill the scriptures. So, if you want to like protect the deity of Christ and say it was God and a bod, which is a heresy, God and a bod. So, God inhabited the body of a man, but the body wasn't really part of God because God can't have a physical body. Those two things don't go together. There's divine spirit and then there's flesh, and the two don't go together. Or you say, okay. I'll give you that Jesus is a man, but, I'm not, but he's not God. So he's in the line of David, but he's not divine. Well, how does God reconcile this dilemma? He's in the line of David through his earthly mother, but his earthly biological father is not actually his biological father. His father is God. So he fulfills this impossible criteria the Bible sets up for Messiah. He is God and he's man. It's why there's two genealogies listed in the New Testament. Luke and Matthew and they seem contradictory but they're not. One is establishing his deity and the other's establishing His humanity and right to the Davidic throne. God is amazing. God is awesome. It's almost like He planned all this before time began. And then providentially was making it all happen. Yes, that is our God, our sovereign God. That is the God in whom you place your trust. Not some tiny version of God. We take a man and elevate him to a little bit better than us, and we say, that's our God. No, that's, that's, that's a puny God. We worship the God-man, Jesus Christ. Why would anyone want to reject a divine king, priest, Messiah? I mean, when, when, you, when you look at it the way I just presented it, it's like, why would you want anything else but that? Nothing else would satisfy it. The Jews wanted a geopolitical messiah that would defeat Israel's enemies... ...and usher in a time of economic peace and prosperity. That's all they wanted. Like Get Rome off of our backs. Get evil tax collectors off of our backs. And then we can go back to just living the happy life that we've always wanted. This reveals the heart of man's misguided desires... I want paradise without God telling me what to do and how to live. I want paradise without God telling me what to do and how to live. So many look at Jesus as Savior to fix all of my problems like a great therapist. Now that all my worldly problems have been solved, back off and let me go live the life I've always wanted. It's like, I want paradise without God. Hmm, gee, where did we hear that in the Bible? Right? Our first parents. Hey, paradise is great, but you know what would make it better? If this God creator wasn't giving us all the rules. And, and the foolishness, because what they didn't realize was God was the best part of the garden. And I hope that that is what you're learning as a Christian and as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Day by day, by God's grace, and even through suffering and Him taking things away from us that we need taken away from us. That will be stripped down all the way bare like Adam and Eve in the garden. And yet, because our sins are forgiven, be naked and unashamed. And realize the best part of the garden is God. In fact, if everything else was gone and it was still God, it would still be paradise. And then you take that teaching, and that changes everything about the way you live. All your hopes, all your dreams, all your aspirations. Heard a good wedding sermon yesterday. And he was making this point that, look... This person can't be the source of your joy. And this person can't be the source of your joy. Because even though there's a lot of joy right now down the road, we know what happens. But if your joy is in Jesus Christ and you see your marriage as a a conduit for the blessing of Christ to flow through your marriage, then you will find everlasting joy. And in the same way that Israel only wanted a conquering Messiah to make all their problems go away so they could go back to living their lives the way they wanted it, we have to come to the realization that that is the essence of our fallenness, that we want God to fix everything and then go away and let me be my own God. And it's the same in our human relationships. We're so busy trying to order our life in such a way that we think, then I'll finally be happy. And we realize we've squeezed out all the people in our life. You saw people either as an obstacle to your happiness or a way to exploit them for your own personal happiness. And you missed out on the fact that just being with that person is the happiness. Like you... You kind of knew that when you first got married. I just want to be around this person forever. You know, and then years later you're like, "What was I thinking? I'm going to be around this person forever." You know, like what what happened? What changed? And sometimes it takes not having that person close to you to realize that's what it was all about. That's what it was all about. All my clamoring for bigger houses and bigger barns and bigger RVs and bigger pension funds and I would trade it all in for one more day with my beloved. And that is where God wants us to get in our relationship with Him. To say like Paul, to live Christ. There's no is in the, in the, in the Greek. To live Christ, period. And to get, to die, gain, because I'm going to be with Him. If that's not what your faith is about, then you may have a cheap imposture of the Christian faith. This is what our faith is about. We worship the King, Priest, Jesus Christ. He's our everything. Our everything. He was everything for us so He could be a are everything for eternity? There's great blessing in having a divine king priest. Not only can we trust that he will rule righteously, we can trust in his rule and he will mediate perfectly for us. It is finished. We're no longer separated from God by our sins if we place our faith in Jesus Christ. But for those who are still trying to deny his deity, and I don't know how you get the perfect king-priest unless he's God. But for those who don't want him to be God, all the cults, now you're stuck with a God, then, who can't commiserate with your sufferings, who can't understand your pain. A distant, aloof God. And the writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of condemnation. No. The throne of, i got to do everything right for this God to be pleased. No. The throne of, maybe if I clean up my act enough, he might tolerate No, the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Who's in time of need right now? Come on, who's in time of need? Who needs grace right now? Approach the throne boldly through your faith in Christ. You won't be turned away. He understands. He's been there. He's done that. He died, but he lives. That you may live eternally. Amen. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You are everything. Forgive us for making you less than that. Forgive us for wanting you to fix all our problems so we can live in paradise without you. You are paradise. Lord, guard our hearts and minds against the lies of the enemy. Trying to downplay your deity or erase your humanity. You are the God-man. You are perfection incarnate. You are everything we want to be but can't. You are everything we should be but couldn't. You are everything we will be and will through faith in you. Help us today to believe that and to take the first footsteps into turning into your image, becoming like you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. God bless you.